0: Today is the day you will lose fat Come see Dr. T at NJ Diet Easiest diet I've ever done Has changed my life Come see Dr. T Using blood work and DNA testing 1-855-5-NJ-DIET And NJDiet.com Change your life in only 40 days With NJ Diet
1: Hey yo, this is Big Daddy Kane And you're listening to another hot interview On The Library With Tim Einenko. Is it
2: Christopher? Chris Chris Lady Alright, where were you born? Bronx, New York I lived in the epicenter of hip hop.
1: Yo, baby Chris, pass me the keys to the car. I'm gonna lay for my monastic wall. Fast it, tap it, and then crack it. Take a small swig, but down it like a pig. You're too tipsy to operate the stick of a
0: mic. My
2: next guest is a former hip hop attor- music attorney and executive, and also the former managing editor of The Source. He's the host of the Combat Jack Show and now host of a new documentary series, Mogul: The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. He's Reggie Osei, aka Combat Jack, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Incel. Welcome, Reggie.
1: Thank you, man. What's up, internets? What's going on, man?
2: Thank you so much for doing this. Um, so I want to start with um, so Mogul: The Life and Death of uh, Chris Lighty is obviously a lot different than the Combat Jack Show. Yes. I want to talk about you know go more into it, but. How do you approach something like the M- mogul versus approaching an interview uh, for Combat Jack?
1: I mean, it's the preparation is it's 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 two different worlds. You know, Combat Jack show sure, I stay up for a couple. You know, I, I prepare for a couple of hours. You know, read as many magazine articles, as many interviews, as many things as I can find online. And after like three or four hours, I'm prepared. You know, and I just go in and it's a one on one and it's. That's it, Not that much pre-production, definitely, not that much, if any post-production. Mogul is completely different. you know it's it's first and foremost pinpointing who our subject is going to be. We didn't just pick just pluck Chris Lighty out of the air. like we had a lot of conversations about like who's gonna re- who's gonna be the best representative for this for this series, particularly season one. Um, And then, you know, just trying to map out, like, where do we start? Do we start from his birth? Do we start from when he starts, you know, lugging records for Red Alert? Do we start when he's at the height of his career and he does the vitamin water deal with 50 Cent? Do we start, you know, from his suicide? Or, you know, where do we start? And then interviewing, not even interviewing, but doing, like, pre-interviews with people that knew Lighty or were part of his circle, and trying to determine who do we speak to, who do we speak to that that was you know close to his marriage? Who do we speak to that was close to his upbringing? Who do we speak to with regard to who he grew up with? You know, just like who were his enemies? Who were you know? How do we reach his mom? How do we reach his family? Like starting out with something like this, a story like this, particularly with Chris Lighty. Chris was a, such a private person. And um, things spiraled out out of control. And so it was really important for us to get the blessings from his family, particularly his mother. And that was a daunting task because, you know, I would say for most of our journey, she wasn't with it. You know, and it wasn't until we got closer and closer to the end and we kept sending her samples of what, you know, interviews that we had gathered and, like, the narrative that we were developing that she eventually, like, she eventually gave us her blessings. But it's just this, this, this journey where you start off, it's like, you know, it's like embarking on, like, a overseas, like, for your first time, trying to find, like, you know, El Dorado and not knowing if it even exists or not. And you're just on this journey and it's just, a, it's like a marathon and you don't know where you're going. But eventually it starts coming together. I mean, I, it's kind of, like, long-winded in a sense, but that's, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell.
2: When I was listening to the series, I realized that, I mean, it's not just about Chris Lighty. It's also kind of in a way it's, it's, a, it's, it's taking us through a history of hip-hop and hip-hop culture. Um, was that purposeful? And then I guess kind of uh, extending on your answer, like I guess why Chris Lighty would be the vehicle to not just talk about him but also talk about the birth of the culture and what it means.
1: I think what made Chris Lighty so attractive for, for, for this season of Mogul is that his 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 life, his his rise coincided with the rise of hip hop. I mean this guy grew up in the ground zero of hip hop, you know, like he looked out his window and saw the pioneers of hip hop as a kid, like the cool hercs and the grandmaster flashes and even the red alerts. So he grew. He grew up as a kid, like enjoying this 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 phenomena, this cultural phenomenon in his backyard. And as it progressed with regard to becoming a business, this dude was in sync. He was like lockstep with the progression of the culture. And when it when we went through the you know the 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 heyday of the nineteen nineties and like the big deals and of course the affiliated like puffy shiny suits yeah, yeah. and he was there. You know, going into the new millennium you know, the whole advent of 50 Cent and, once again, the Vitamin Water deal. And even, you know, there were a lot of stuff that we left on the cutting room floor, like his initial discussions with Drake's crew about becoming his, you know, the possibility of him managing Drake. Or, you know, even conversations about how he, not just Leo or Cohen, but he himself came up with the concept of the 360 deal, which is so prevalent in the music industry today. Like, this guy was the perfect figure to launch this show because he was hip-hop in a sense. To the very end, he was hip-hop. Like, the elaborate hip-hop-style, you know, wedding and just everything was just still so entrenched in hip-hop. And he just made the... I think it it made sense. And it it also brought added value that we could delve into the history of hip-hop, which was really fun.
2: I want to talk more about Chris, but, you know, you you approach uh, different ventures. Um, When you do stuff like this, are you approaching it out of kind of a labor of love and then it just so happens to raise the bar and whatever you're doing? Are you consciously trying to raise the bar no matter what you have your hands on?
1: You know, in my prior careers, I think the approach was quote-unquote raising the bar. Whereas, you know, in this world of podcasting right now, the Combat Jack Show, my involvement with the Loudspeakers Network, um, is definitely um, coming from a place of passion. Definitely coming from a place of passion. And my experience has shown me that, you know, whenever I approach something from that perspective, like I'm not necessarily thinking about the end result as opposed to like how much enjoyment I'm going to get out of it, how much fulfillment I'm going to get out of it. And knowing that if I'm as fulfilled in doing something, that my audience will be as fulfilled, you know? So it's like, so, yeah, I I definitely, like, you know, say raise the bar. But this was, like, definitely, like, I I love this project. I think it was very close to me. And it was more important that we get it right. More important that, you know, not necessarily concerned about the impact, but the, the focus on doing it right. And if we do it right, then eventually it'll raise the bar. So it's the, from, it's, it's, it's the passion part that comes first. I sense something about Chris with his character, you know, about how he come across with a business sense. And when him and I talk, I listen to his lingo. And when I listen to his lingo, it's like, this guy got something dear. Red was right.
2: So when did you first hear of Chris Lighty? And then, when you first heard him or heard of him, was that like right away? Did you start following him, or did you just kind of hear of him here and there, and then eventually realize he was like going to be a big thing?
1: You know, I first heard of Chris Lighty when I was still in law school, and um, you know, was really into the Jungle Brothers. You know, I I love their first album, um, Straight Out the Jungle, and you know, looking at videos between you know the Jungle Brothers and. Boogie Down Productions, you know, KRS-One, which is like one of my favorite rappers. And then just looking at these videos and just seeing this one common guy in the background and all these videos, and this guy is actually kind of easy to miss. But after three or four times, like seeing him in like different, like, you know, we didn't have an abundance of music videos in the late 80s as you do now. So it's like yeah. particularly hip hop videos. And so when you're looking at them, you're just taking it all in. And I think I saw Chris Lighty in these videos before I actually heard of him. I think the first time I actually heard of him was him mentioned in uh, a Tribe Called Quest song. But it was like, who is this guy? Um, I eventually got into the industry and I started hearing about this guy more. Chris Lighty does this with with, with Rush Management, Violator Records. And then I actually met Chris Lighty. We had done a couple of deals and you know just the thing about Chris Lighty is that he, he definitely the, the theme that you hear a, a lot in Mogul is that this guy was a chameleon and I remember one night hanging out with Chris Lighty um, we only hung out, hung out once at this party and I remember even then walking away asking myself like who is this guy because he really didn't give us he didn't really give me anything other than this guy was a player in the industry, he was really serious, he's well-connected, and he just knew how to move in a room, but that was it. So, and, you know, knowing, you know, having clients being involved with violator management and doing deals with them and just seeing how, you know, this guy was really efficient in building stars or taking care of his artists. But that was really it, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't an intimate, an intimate knowledge or intimate relationship with this guy. This guy was just like one of us in the industry, You know, and then you hear about the vitamin water deal and you're like, oh shit, like this guy, how far is this guy going? And then a couple of years later, boom. And it's like, what the fuck happened? You know, but it was just like, once again, like him being lockstep with hip hop and me just being an avid fan from day one and just like learning about this guy because he was just always at the right places at the right time.
2: I mean, as mentioned, this is also... This is a passion for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you—you you know, you—you—you you, you you, you know, it's like you have a love affair with hip hop, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, um, interesting. A great thing about the the series is that, and, and, and something you mentioned, he goes, you know, Chris used hip hop to escape from like an abusive home and violence on the street. So I was always wondering, what what did what drew you to hip hop? Why did you like? What was it? Uh, were you trying to escape from something, or was it just I mean, like?
1: hip hop I mean not necessarily trying to escape something as you know I mean my experience with hip hop one of my best friends growing up Frank Ford lived down the block from me Frank was a little older than me I was still in high school we were both still in high school but Frank was like a couple of years older than me and Frank had this uh, foot uh, messenger job in the city and at the time I didn't go to this city that much and the world was a lot bigger so, like, going to, like, traveling from, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you might, as well, you might as well have been traveling from, like, Brooklyn to Connecticut. And then even going to the Bronx, I was, like, oh, no, going yeah, to I'm California. Gonna, yeah, you know what I mean? So, but he kept telling me about, yo, you got to hear rap. You got to hear rap. You got to hear rap because I guess he was hearing from it, hearing about it from his coworkers who were from Harlem and from the Bronx. And then one day, I just, I'll, I'll never forget this day. It's, like, a sunny afternoon in July or June. 1979 comes home he, he has this big boom box and he slips in this cassette and it's uh, Grandmaster Flash it's a, it's, a, it's a recording of a live performance of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and I hear it and we're all fucking going crazy and at least I, mean, I knew at that moment um, and there's so many different reasons why just hearing this art form for the first time and it's just like you get it You know, whereas so many people at the time didn't get it. Um, And then hearing the beats that we were hearing from like all of our, all like the black parties and the the park jams, but hearing people that sounded so much like us, like they sounded like our peers, the language, the slang. It was like this emerging like way of talk, like this hip hop talk that these guys just had it down, you know, down pack. And, you know, when you look at, some of the other some of our other idols at the time like the michael jackson's like the princes like you know the disco stars or stevie wonder they were always out of our league or out of our class you know what i'm saying like we could only get but so close to them where these are the guys that for the most part dressed like us talk like us um rap like us even though we weren't rappers you know what i'm saying and it was just it was just so transformative so it wasn't necessarily escape as much as you know being so vulnerable as a teenager and trying to find out who you are this this was like okay this is who i'm going to be it's like i'm going to be hip hop i had no choice you know what i mean right, yeah. right. i got sucked in so it was less of a of 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 escape and more destiny, in a sense, I was I was destined to be a part of this thing.
2: A great thing about the Chris slidey story is that, and, and just I mean, I don't, you don't, I, obviously you can't understand what the man's thinking at all times, but and or what he sees. But there's this great story about uh, how Warren G and Chris Lighty saw, like, was like I saw saw potential in him, right? And. And, and one thing I wanted to turn back to you is that you were kind of one of the early adopters to Westside Gun and Conway. And now they're blowing up like crazy. What did you see in them that maybe some people just did not? Like, how did you how did you know so early that they were going to be a big deal?
1: You know, it's... I guess when you have a... And I'm not in any way saying, like, I'm an A&R guy, I'm a creative guy, but... Okay, so... This is, this, is, this is 2017. I've been listening to hip-hop since 1979. And it's very easy throughout, throughout, the, throughout the, the, this run of years. There's been many times where it's just like, is rap dying? Is it a dying art form? Is right. it dead? Um, nothing I'm hearing excites me. Everything's been done before. Um, it's not exciting. Uh, okay, everybody likes it. It sounds good in a club. But am I going to really sit down and put on my headphones and study it like I used to back right. in the day before the information age when we had time to study our favorite albums right. or our not so favorite albums, you know? And I had hearing, I had been hearing about West Side Gun and Conway for a long time. Like a lot of my peers were like, are you fucking with them? Are you fucking with them? I was like, I don't. I associated West Side with like some, you know, New Cali, like gangbanger type. And I was like, eh. And then one day I just decided to put them on the headphones and I was like, oh, shit. Like we're in 2017, but it takes me back to like this kind of like this Raekwon ghost face kind of era. And then just the abstract. Ab- abstractedness of like the production it, it just it was just kind of like otherworldly yeah even though it was grounded in like east coast like like gangster rap it was just it took me someplace else and that that that's what it is going back to your earlier question the minute I put on West Side Gun and Conway it was an escape
2: mm.
1: right you know what I'm saying like instantly I didn't have to it, I didn't have to think through it it was just like oh shit they're taking me somewhere right
2: Oh, like, I or it's they're, taking, like me, they're
1: taking me towards they're taking me to the past but not necessarily because it's now and going into the future so right. it's kind of like this weird like it's almost timeless right right timeless east coast yeah so
2: yeah when I heard west side I was like totally California yeah, right and Buffalo yeah. New York yeah, yeah definitely definitely
1: <laughs> I remember being in the, in the UK I was in the UK last summer and playing west side gun a lot and my mates out there were like we don't get it. and I was like maybe you wouldn't get it because you're not from that that specific time mm-hmm. in the east coast and you're not from there so it's kind like right. of like harder for you to adapt but this is kind of like it's um it's kind of like futuristic nostalgia
2: yeah uh, we're speaking to our Reggie Osei uh, has a new documentary out Mogul The Life and Death of Chris Lighty I want to Reggie I want to turn back to the doc um you know, A Tribe Called Quest, LLQJ, Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, Fat Joe, 50 Cent. Or, you know, just name a few artists that were under the Chris Lighty belt. Um, during your research, I mean, these guys are all all-star caliber artists. They're all legends in their own right. Um, did you get further insight into what uh, Chris looked for in an uh, artist? And kind of like how did it seem like these all these artists have longevity, too? Uh, they're not going to be one-hit wonders. Uh, was there any insight into him doing that? Like, did he do that purposeful? Was he looking for that one hit wonder just to make the buck, and or was he doing longevity?
1: I think, you know, like I said, like like you said, like not knowing Chris's thought process, um, but you can look at his, you know, his his performance and his average, you know, his performance average, and I think he was looking for artists that he saw he was able to provide. Some type of longevity too with regard to their careers. He wasn't c- so much concerned about their music as, you know, and he was very passionate about the music as much as how he can translate their music and their career into their brand. Like, Chris was one of the first, like, he was one of the first adapters of, you know, brand. Like, you know, we hear that now and so cliche, but he was like, how can we make this? A brand that you will be able to feed your family, you know, with for like a long time. That, I think that was his concern. Like, I think he had been tired, he had come from the era where there were so many one hit wonders. And because he loved the, 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 the culture so much, and, you know, he had this way of really um, endearing himself to each and every one of his clients. There's this one interview where we had with Nori, Noriega and Noriega we, it didn't make the it didn't make the show but Noriega was like you know um, Harry Gold from um, Entourage and how he just yeah. loved Vinny Chase like Vinny was like his favorite client well Chris made everyone feel like Vinny Chase you know Norie's like I felt like Vinny Chase and Norie even shared like Chris had this commitment with Nori. like Norie was a knucklehead Norie had this big hit record you know, he didn't really, you know, he really was just like a loose cannon. And Chris was like, listen, just just fuck with me until I make you your first million. And then you'll get it. And then Nori's like, he made me my first million and then I got it. But to hear someone say, like, he was dedicated to getting me past this, you know, one hit one that you might not survive. He's like, I got you a million. Now you're on your feet. Right. You know what I mean? So it's just like. He had this sense of commitment, this sense of mission um, to his clients. I think he was very concerned about, you know, the music industry's past with regard to black artists and how, you know, we create this great music and all of a sudden, you know, we're, 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 we're left on the sidelines and we're, not, we're forgotten. And he, was, he didn't want his clients to be forgotten. I mean, he had this other thing, too, this other attraction to, I think, the pariahs or the quote-unquote pariahs, like the Fat Joes and particularly the 50 Cent's. Like 50, cents in par- 50 Cent in particular, this guy who no one wanted to touch. Like, this guy was that impossible project. And Chris looked at it and he was like, oh, that? That's what I was born to do. Right. Is that
2: normal? Is that like a normal characteristic in any, I mean, I, hip-hop in particular, but in any music manager? To- I mean, you,
1: you tell me. Like, when we, when we set out to do whatever in, endeavor we're, 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 we're focused on, I mean part of it is like yeah we want the challenge but we don't want to make it impossible. We don't want to put ourselves in danger. We don't want to make it harder than it should be. And I think Chris reveled in like no one else can do this. Right. No one else is going to feel comfortable having to having to wear a bulletproof vest with 50 cent and knowing that at any moment you know you're 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 a target. But yet I I see way beyond this. You know what I mean? It was just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I I mean, and and you know, as history shows, like almost no one wanted to touch fifty. No one wanted to touch fifty because it was such a great risk—not even just a financial risk, but like um, life and death. <laughs> life and death, you know. And but Chris had this really, and you hear you hear about it throughout the story. And we had so many more um, interviews that talk about how Chris. We all have this, like, um, we all have a tendency, this reflex. And when there's danger, when there's imminent danger, we run from it. But Chris had this uncanny, like, talent. He ran towards it, you know, which I think is very rare.
2: And that also speaks a lot from the art. I mean, from the artist's perspective, if you have a manager who's willing to take a bullet, literally willing to take a bullet for you, I mean, why wouldn't you be loyal to them?
1: Of course. Like, I mean, I don't think he went out of his way to... Convince his clients that they should sign with him, but he had this way of making each and every one of them feel—not even feel—because he was actually in the trenches with them, whatever their respective trenches were.
2: Out of all his artists, uh, as a fan for you, who had the biggest? You think who had the biggest impact on you? And then in the industry, who do you think had the biggest impact on the industry?
1: I mean, that's kind of difficult because. There's so many different eras, and there's so many... I mean, probably the one that he worked with that has had the biggest impact on me was Diddy. Sean Diddy Combs, he managed Diddy for a while, and you would think, Diddy, with his empire, why would Diddy need someone to manage him? But at some point, when Diddy was, you know, definitely in full artist mode, he needed someone to guide him, and Chris Lighty was that guy, and, you know, looking back, nothing... uh, against Chris Lighty, nothing against anyone who were pioneers you know from that era with regards to the music business but there's a sense of pride that I get from being in the same era with Diddy because like he undoubtedly is one of the best he's the best that did it from my era right like Diddy is definitely like the greatest hip hop showman of all time if you really look at his impact and still his current you know relevance in the culture so definitely Diddy um Hello, Cool J, it comes from my era, like Tribe Call Quest and the extended native tongues collective. You know, that that's such it's timeless, like like the, a Tribe Call Quest is timeless. I mean one of the stories we heard is how even with the lasting impact of Chris Lighty, we had the opportunity to interview Mace from De La Soul, And he talked about, you know, during the days leading up to his last days like he fought long and hard with Fife and Q-Tip. It's like, what the fuck, guys? Like, this is how you're gonna end your fucking run. Like, you're gonna, you're just, you're not gonna give us a classic. And he fought and he fought and he fought. And eventually, a tribe called Quest committed to recording their 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 most recent album, which came out with this year. Yeah, and it was just an amazing album. And but you don't. Hear the backstory about how Chris—that's like Chris Lighty—making sure that they, particularly with Five still alive, like that's—it's that's Chris Lighty,
2: right, right? You know what I mean? Like that's. Is a manager usually involved with? I guess the product, the studio process. I mean, are they? Is that normal, or is that an do, old school? It depends. Kind of way of it thinking?
1: depends on you know the, the caliber of the manager. Like you know, there are a lot of managers out there still, from day one to now, that are still heavily involved in every aspect of their uh, client's career and life. You know, if someone's having issues at home, the manager is there. You know what I'm saying? No. Like if there's beef, the manager is there to squash it. You know, so I think the best managers, I mean, I think that's a quality of the best managers. You know what I'm saying? So it's not odd or it's not rare, but of course being the best is kind of rare. Right. You yeah. know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I have to ask you about the DMX story, because uh, yeah. DMX is one of my favorite, yeah. his first album.
1: Yeah, Yonkers what up?
2: Yeah, Yonkers. Yeah. I used to work out to that thing every day. Yeah. But
1: it's a great workout. It's still I, a great workout CD.
2: The introduction itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you say in it, um, you tell a story about how DMX punched uh, Lighty, and you say yeah. this is kind of proves how far he came in, his, how Chris had come in his career. Can you just briefly talk about that story, but also, how did that show how far he came into his career?
1: I mean, first and foremost, I remember that night specifically. I was still in the music industry, and we didn't have the internet, so we didn't have Twitter or anything like that. But we did—we did have the Skytel two-way Motorola pages. (laughs) And I remember maybe like moments after it happened, like all of the attorneys in my office just started getting that buzz, like "Oh shit." DMX just punched Chris Lighty. and it was just like it wasn't you know it wasn't on the radio it wasn't on you know mainstream media but if you were in the industry if you were within the the smaller circles within the industry you were like oh shit so that night there was like this it was just like very tense cuz no one knew what was going to ensue because what we did know is even though Chris was this established successful businessman you like Everyone who loved Chris loved him, you know what I'm saying, to the point that if he was in harm's way, they would step up. Right. So we heard rumors of, oh, shit, Buster's crew is looking for DMX. Oh, shit, Q-Tip even is looking for DMX, the Violators. So it was just like, what the fuck is going to happen? Is DMX going live to live to see sun up? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of, yeah, you know, It was yeah. just this tense, tense yeah. thing. So when... I forgot who we interviewed but when when I think it was Eric Nix or a couple of people when we started discussing this like I remember the good folk at Gimlet was like did this really happen and they like should we like should we put our fact checkers on it I was like no it really really happened because I remember that night it was an event it was one of those events that you'll never forget yeah yeah. and even though it's not that big or whatever you never forget the night that that happened if you were involved if you were in that environment Um, and I think it speaks to the fact I mean in terms of how far Chris came at that point, I'm sure there were barriers. I'm sure his his relationship with Def Jam. I'm sure the Leos. I'm sure a lot of people stopped him from responding immediately. And even you know, though there was an alleged manhunt after Dmx, I'm sure you know you hear about you know maybe uh, Leor saying, "Look." this guy's a cash cow, you're a businessman. If there's bloodshed, if there's you know bodily harm, it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. Right. You, you you just broke your tooth. And, and so this is another part that wasn't in the story. Lighty's first, re- most immediate response or reaction to him getting punched with, by DMX is like, I can't let my family see me like this. I can't let my family see me like this. And then... Lior arranged for him to go to. like some midnight specialist dentist, and then he comes out like an hour or two later with you know, new teeth. So his kids don't know would never know. Um, so just that commitment to his family, like just a commitment to his daughter, Tiffany. Like that relationship. Like I don't want to see me, her to see me like this. And then even him eventually, you know, having a cooler head and prevailing and saying, "All right, DMX, you're good, but you have to pay me for this." You know that's mm-hmm. that, that comes a long way from the brawls at Union Square yeah, yeah. or at Latifah's party or you know wherever. It's just like if I'm gonna be this consummate businessman, then this is my biggest test. And how am I gonna you know yeah. show how far I've I've, I've 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 matured?
2: One one thing that's amazing I think about uh, Lighty is that I, I don't know, maybe she had a audacity. I mean he would he would do something that if I feel like if a Joe Schmo did it for like their first job, they would be never they would be cast out of the industry, right? So like when he said to uh, Russell Simmons, I'm not fucking with y'all, is that something that well one, can that be done today in the music industry? Can you be an up and comer and just say to a Russell Simmons like this is it? Or how did like why did why didn't this stop Chris Lighty's career? You know, these four words. I
1: mean, I think you gotta look at the time it was still a developing um, industry and Russell was very young in the game Russell probably didn't even care like Russell said it himself like at those, those days he was high as a kite right so he doesn't even remember that encounter um, you know one of the things that someone recently, like someone close to Lighty sent to me is like his response his reaction to seeing Russell and Nels wasn't just a surf. like this guy comes from a deeply religious upbringing he was like a jehovah's witness so i guess even though he had experienced things that were, weren't were very jehovah witness like in hip-hop you know being in a downtown scene and where there's where they're playing hip-hop and there are not that many black people in the club and you're seeing snakes in the whole time i'm sure it just it just triggered something about this is not holy right and i'm right. now like i might be going into like Sinful error, you know what I mean. Yeah. So it just challenged him a lot, but also I think it also speaks to, you know, Leor definitely was the mastermind with regard to recruiting lighting, and he recognized that this was a guy that even though he wasn't polished, he had everything it took to to, to transform him into a into into a successful asset. I mean, into into an asset and a successful businessman. I think Leor knowing Russell and knowing how Russell might be off-putting to people like Lighty, it was really Le- Lear that was like, dude, that's just fucking Russell.
2: Right. Just so, join us. That's yeah.
1: Russell. Like, Russell's one of a kind and he remains one okay. of a kind. So, I think it was the time and I think it just speaks to the qualities that, 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 that Lighty had that made Lear want to recruit him regardless of what his initial impression was of Russell. Right.
2: Uh, in the series, you, uh, you explore the darker side of Chris Lighty, and you, you come across police reports on uh, domestic violence. Um, and you guys, I think, handled it really well. Thank you. Um, that was really tough. It seemed it. And so my, my question is, how, as a fan of his, how emotionally tough was that for you when you saw those reports? And then I imagine those interviews follow-up interviews with you know, whoever, with the family, whoever. How tough was that to go through?
1: Um. You know, I mean, I think you asked me earlier the difference between, you know, working on a combat jack show and working on Mogul. And I think, you know, that what you just brought up was really the big difference in that, you know, not saying that my the combat jack show was fluffy, but I'm there to prop up yeah. my, my and celebrate the accomplishments of my interview, you know, of my subjects. And I'm not there to tear anybody down, whereas... I was really concerned that, you know, the information we found via the police reports would tear down uh, Lighty's legacy. So I was really concerned about that. Um, I was really concerned that, you know, knowing that Lighty was a very private person and if he were alive, definitely wouldn't have approved of this project. I was like, am I betraying Lighty himself? And then just, you know, a little selfish, I was like... Am I putting myself in harm's way? You know what I'm saying? Like, we talk about DMX and knowing the people that still love Lighty, you know, right. just love Lighty. And just like, am I betraying their confidence in them allowing me to do this story? Because a lot of people at a certain point felt comfortable with me doing this story. Like, am I betraying them? And so, you know, the arguments that we had, that I had with, you know, my Gimlet team, I was like, I don't want to do this. I didn't sign up to do this. And them like, but it's part of, you know, journalism. Right. It's really part of, like, the integrity of being a true journalist. And just, that was really the the hardest part to overcome is, like, how do we do it? And um, eventually when I was convinced that we had to do it, it was like, well, how do I do this? Like, do I... Make myself as vulnerable as I could be to just really convey to like his family and his loved ones, like, dude, I I don't want to do this. Right. But we are like that was really it was like I don't want to do this, but we are. And I just it was it was just it was a rough it was a rough patch because I lived it like just not live it in my own personal life, but I lived like that emotional weight. Of having this information, and having to do something, but feeling very uncomfortable moving forward. So it was it was tough, man.
2: Um, on December thirtieth, twenty twelve, uh, Chris Lighty killed himself. Yes, um, he was battling depression, uh, which in the document appeared to have surprised many people. Um, in the series, you guys talk about depression. Even Fat Joe talks about it. Yes, uh, it seems that in 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 hip hop. A lot of musicians are now talking openly in their music about depression, battling addiction. I mean, you have like Slaughterhouse Crew, really. You know, Royce, Crooked Eye, Joe L are all um, not drinking. Any, you know, uh, Joe Button, Joe Button.
1: Uh, you know, so
2: what's the difference between talking? But but it, but also at the same time, it seems like it's it's surprising when someone says they're depressed. So what's the difference between? Talking about your depression in music versus talking about your depression amongst your family? Well, I think,
1: I think, you know, it's also the time. Um, I think there's more, it's not really broad, it's not as big as I'd like it to be, but there's more awareness of um, the issue of mental health, not only in the music industry, but in, our, in, the, in, the, in the black community as well. This is something that was very taboo. And just personally, I remember, you know, during my last days as an attorney, um feeling very tired um feeling very heavy um waking up every day waking up every day and putting on my suit and taking that walk from my house to the subway and not feeling suicidal or anything but knowing that I was suffering and actually praying for that accident like the proverbial piano Snapping from like a rooftop or like some car jumping the curb, just to take me out of my my and not knowing until very recently that I was probably suffering from some mild form of depression and so and just remembering also, you know during those days when I was going through it, and particularly being just so tired and talking to my peers in the industry, like my my my, my legal colleagues and saying, dude I need a vacation I need a break and I'm like and them responding like what the fuck are you talking about we're making money you just need to fucking man up take some vitamins and stop talking that weak shit right yeah yeah right. you know what I mean so just having to deal with how people respond to you admitting that there's some type of thing that you're suffering through and them looking at you as you're weak or not you or that you're Goofing off or fucking around and not doing the best that you can. Um we were just very guarded, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, the advent of, of of you know, the information age and people like myself and Tack Stone, like really talking and addressing mental issues. And then of course artists always being on that, you know, on that on that, you know, just being on that curve where they they're very aware of what they're going through and and Knowing why they self-medicated and why, you know, self-medication and heavy drug use and, you know, alcohol use is so prevalent in the arts, particularly in hip hop, and just like this is an issue. So it's kind of like we're still learning about this, and more people are talking about this, and pe- more people are making this more aware to their peers and you know the, the the greater audience. But it's still pretty early in the day where we, as a black community, are dealing with mental issues because it's almost as if. You know, throughout the centuries of our existence here, we haven't had the luxury of dealing with the trauma of slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, continued, you know, police oppression and even the shit that goes on in our community, you know. Um, Had this amazing exchange with this young man two years ago, a couple of years ago, when I had a, 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 a bigger cast... On a calm jack show There was definitely friction amongst us And it was suggested that we have a therapist on You know for entertainment value But also to address why we were so um, dysfunctional And we had a therapist on And it was only one episode But she really helped our relationships at the time And I remember this young man reaching out to me A couple of weeks later And he was, I want to say he was from the west coast He was about 23 at the time He was just thanking me because he, I think he was 17 years old, and he had been shot. You know, it was life or death. He survived. He pulled through. And as he was healing his home physically after he had gotten healed, he didn't want to come outside at all. And eventually the block started teasing him. Like, are you scared? You're scared to get shot again? Like, man up, little nigga. Like, just the shit you get. And then just, like, him dealing with that... High level of post traumatic, you know, stress disorder, and not even knowing, right, that he was suffering through major trauma, and hearing that episode, and like he was like, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with me, and there's someone out there that I can be able to." S-. When you hear that, and this goes on every day in Black America across the I nation, mean, Paramount
2: talks about it. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: But when you hear someone that young. Talking about how they're how they're forced to ignore their mental trauma it's heartbreaking. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's heartbreaking. So, you know, I'm really glad that more people, more artists, um, I take it, you know, upon myself to discuss that this is a real issue.
2: Do you think did Lighty does not talk about it, or I mean, do uh, do do you imagine there was, I mean, maybe private moments or intimate moments that he did talk about? You know,
1: I think with Lighty, you know. Understanding the stigma, and him being so powerful, and also just his personality—like, Lighty was there to make sure everything was okay and good for you, and he was not there for you to make sure he was okay. Like that was just his role. From being six years old and being told that he was the man of the house. Right. No, how how wide are you? You know, to ignore your own. Discomfort for the benefit of others So I don't think he ever felt comfortable um, You know you hear This exchange that he had with D. Nice and all he said was To D. Nice is I don't, I don't Feel good Right. And I think that's probably As far as he could go With sharing that with anybody You know what I'm saying even his closest friends That's not something he, you know I would feel Comfortable still sharing with a lot of people
2: Right yeah I mean you put a Happy face on, and yeah.
1: I mean, I I mean, isn't that what we all do? And I think, you know, there's still that that chasm that we have to overcome, where we don't view, you know, therapy and mental self care as just being this luxury for white people. You know what I mean?
2: Right. Especially in it's funny because especially in New York City, where you walk down the street and you hear open conversations about going to therapists, right? I mean, it's like so it doesn't seem like it would have this stigma. Anymore, But it's amazing that it still does.
1: But when you're in the hood, right. you don't right. hear that. Right, right. You right. don't hear these conversations at all. Right. When you de- you in the hood, you definitely don't hear about that. Right,
2: true. I mean, that's like a mid-town. And,
1: right? and, you, and you know, I'm not even saying that you, in the hood or in the black communities, that we don't have the luxury of, of mental care. But we just don't have the luxury of taking that, e- that break even, of focusing on that, because it's really... Our, you know, our mission to survive is such at a higher rate. Right. It's just a higher level. You know what I mean?
2: Do you think there is a movement with the younger generation to? I think so. This thing I definitely on?
1: think so. I think it's you know you, you know, there's more discussion of it, and um, the fact that we're even discussing it right now, whereas I don't think ten years ago that we, anybody would be discussing the, the issue of mental health and hip hop. Right.
2: Overall, what was your? I know, biggest takeaway, what did you learn that you did not know? uh, And your favorite thing you learned from the Chris Lighty story? Um,
1: You know, I have children. Um, I'm going through a divorce. And what I learned about Chris Lighty, and it also actually humbled me and inspired me at the same time, which is how committed he was to his kids. It seems like everything he went through, you know, him being a young father and, you know, at 17 and, and being forced to take his daughter with him everywhere, studio sessions, shows, like right. the office, like just really his commitment really made me reevaluate, you know how much more committed I need to be with my kids. Not that I'm not committed, but it was just like this guy, like everything, it seems that he did. Like he gets punched in the mouth, and he's, his tooth is missing. He's like, "I don't want my daughter to see this." It's just it's humbling, you know what I mean?
2: Right. I mean, like the first reaction, like, "Where's DMX?"
1: Yeah, where's DMX, or how much am I getting paid? But he's like, "I'm not going home."
2: Uh, yeah, right. Like this. Wow. He's Reggie Jose, aka Combat Jack. Yes, sir. Uh, new documentary mogul, the life and death of Chris Lighty with loudspeakers. i Gimlet. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank the you library. so
1: much, man. I really enjoyed this. Cool. Let's Slighty,
0: if he wasn't such a baby? What is a woman if she didn't say maybe? Baby laid down, I removed the frown. What would be my penal core if it wasn't brown? What is a paper without a president? What is a compound without an element? What is a jam if you don't spike the punch? What's a brewski if you don't bite brunch? Ooh, it's like that you keep going. Freak, freak, you cause you know that we showing. What, tigger, 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 what? T-ga, what, t-ga, what? what?